Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through. Keeping their delicate skin healthy and happy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick and goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable. When my oldest was little, she would get the worst diaper rash. It left me feeling so desperate to help her while also wanting something gentle on her skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor. When she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash, she let nothing get in her way. You can use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel confident that you are making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra-premium formula for moms that won't settle when it comes to their little ones. Soothe and restore with active ingredients being dimethicone and petrolatum. You can find more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com or find it on Amazon or walmart.com. Good morning, women of strength. It is Wednesday, December 9th, and it is a very special day for our guest today. It is her VBAC baby's birthday, which is so exciting because (laughs) I sent it out in an email a little while ago, and I think we've talked about it a little bit before on the podcast, but Megan gives me such a hard time. Not a hard time. She just teases me or giggles or whatever because it always seems like whenever we air the podcast, we have it's like this, the date has a special meaning. It's without, it's without fail. Like <laughs> it has never not happened when you're like, your episode will be airing on this day. And then we're like, oh my gosh, it's my anniversary. Oh my gosh, it's my child's birthday. That's yeah. my mother-in-law's birthday. Yeah, or, it's so funny. It's so yeah. funny how it happens. <laughs> so happy birthday to VBAC baby. We'll wait and share her name. We'll wait and let you decide if you want to share her name or not. But she, but something even more exciting about our guest today is she's from Sydney, Australia. And we were just chatting a little bit before the show. And um, it's been my dream since I was a kid. Like, I think even since I could learn to say the word Australia, it's been like my dream to go there. And I was growing up, when I was growing up, I always dreamed I'd marry someone from Australia so I could listen to their dreamy accent all day telling me that they love me. And I had this like huge fantasy and then I married Nick from Sandy, Utah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me wrong. Nick has many, many, many other strings, but he does not have an Australian accent. And so I'm really excited to talk to Beck today. And Beck is really, really just an amazing person. She lives in Sydney. She's married to her husband, Phil. She works in PR for a, for a motoring organization. Wait, what? Motoring? Yeah, I think in America, you guys have the AA. It's sort of the equivalent over here. Not Alcoholics Anonymous, the Automobile Association. Oh, the AAA. Okay. AAA. There we go. <laughs> Lost in translation. Clear over my There we head. go. All right. She has a hobby store business and makes baby stuff like bibs and nappy wallets. And she loves the beach and beers with her neighbors on the front steps of our homes while playing with the kids. And that sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> except for me, instead of beer, it would be... Red Bull or Pepsi? I was going to say Pepsi. (laughs) (laughs) But we are so excited to hear Beck's story. But first, Megan has a review of the week for us. Yes, I do. And this is just a short and sweet one, but I love it. It is from Apple Podcasts, and it's from Snur. (laughs) S-N-R-R. 
And her, oh my, I have a frog in my throat. Her her title is Obsessed. It says, thank you for bringing facts to my ears as I prepare for my VBAC. I love hearing all the stories from my fellow women of strength. I feel so inspired and encouraged. And I just love that. It's short and sweet and powerful. And these types of reviews, as you all know, Julie and I just love. We love hearing your reviews. We love hearing what you think about it. And we would love for you to tell us what you think about it. So head over to Apple Podcasts or Facebook or Google or wherever you listen to your podcast or can find us, which is like everywhere, and leave us a review. We would love to read it on the podcast. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Do you want a VBAC but don't know where to start? It's easy to feel like we need to figure it all out on our own. That's what we used to do, and it was the loneliest, most ineffective thing we have ever done. That's why Megan and I created our signature course, How to VBAC, the ultimate preparation course for parents that you can find at the VBAClink.com. It is the most comprehensive VBAC preparation course in the world, perfectly packaged in an online self-paced video course. Together, Megan and I have helped over 800 parents get the birth that they wanted, and we are ready to help you too. Head on over to the VBAClink.com to find out more and sign up today. That's the VBAClink.com. See you there. All right. I am so excited for today. And I think that Beck deserves a special shout out because she's in Australia and in Utah, while we're recording, it's 930 in the morning. But in Australia, <laughs> we're it's nice and fresh. Freaking 30 in the morning. She <laughs> literally woke up at 230 in the morning to come and record <laughs> this session with us. And I was just saying, nothing gets me out of That's bed dedication. in the morning unless I'm getting called to a birth. Like my kids, no, my husband deals with the kids at 2.30 in the morning. Like nothing. <laughs> Earthquake, I will stay in my house and let the ceiling fall on my head. Like nothing gets me out of bed at 2.30 in the morning. And so I was saying like, oh, she must really love us if she gets up so early to share her story with us. Um, and I'm really, really excited. And I we're going to talk after her story about due dates because she went to almost 42 weeks with her VBAC. And so I know a lot of people have pressure from their providers to induce even before 40 weeks or to just schedule a cesarean. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit at the end. But before we do, we are going to have Beck share her incredible story and just sit here and swoon over her really fun <laughs> Australian Hirsch, I know. It's so beautiful. The pressure's on. I feel like I should be a Hemsworth talking to you if you want the sweet nothing. No, it's beautiful. <laughs> we'll, we'll channel our inner Thor vibes and <laughs> while we're listening to you. But yes, you're, you're, you're great. Oh, very funny. So I guess I'll start with my first birth. Jack was a breech baby. I found out he was breech at about 34 weeks. And everything had been quite smooth sailing up until that point. I'm somebody who, as soon as I find out something's going my way, I 
throw myself into the research and we joked that by the end of this pregnancy I could have nearly been a breach expert. I could have stood up and given a lecture on on the breach term trial papers and everything about the system and why the system wants us to to have a cesarean for breach babies, which is kind of bitterly ironic because he was a cesarean. So I had three unsuccessful ECVs. I did handstands in the pool. I had all the smelly stuff that you're supposed to do. I did absolutely everything I possibly could do to try and turn him. But he was, um, and still is, he's three and a half now, very stubborn and wanted to stay wedged in my pelvis with his bum down. My labour started pretty much on his due date and I went about a day, oh, I went for a walk, I tried to move through contractions. It was a really uncomfortable day but it was manageable. So that was on a Monday night, Tuesday was that manageable day. By 6pm on the Tuesday night my midwife said, okay, I think it's time to come into hospital, we're just going to monitor you. I thought, okay, no worries, that's, that's what you do. I now know that I should have just stayed at home for a bit longer. The monitors, as soon as I was strapped to the bed, I felt like that was it. I wasn't allowed to move. And I had a particularly, oh, I don't know how to put it politely, but a midwife on shift whose vibe just didn't work with me. So every time I moved and tried to move through a contraction, she'd say, get back on the bed. The monitors are going to fall off. What do you think you're doing? So if the monitors did fall off, obviously, then the doctors would come in. What's wrong? What's wrong? The silly thing was everything was fine on the monitors. The baby was fine. I was fine. I just needed to move like a woman does in labor through those contractions to get everything going. But I felt like a caged animal and I was just being pushed back and trapped and I couldn't do all of that. And I remember saying to her, this is just so hard. This is so hard after a contraction. And she said, yeah, well, you chose to do this. And words like that to a labouring woman who needs to feel very safe in order yeah. for that labour to progress, you know, no wonder it wasn't progressing. <laughs> well, and feeling trapped and, like, confined like you were, like, that is not going to bring a relaxed relaxed cervix, you know, <laughs> like no. a relaxed body to let the cervix open. And exactly. then comments like that only makes it worse. I just I felt like a naughty little schoolgirl. I felt like it was this flashback to sitting outside the principal's office. That's so funny. But all I was trying to do was have my baby my way and my body was trying to do that but I had these external forces pushing me, like telling me, no, 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 you shouldn't be doing what my body was trying to do, which is really unnatural. So that was that was a long night. I remember my husband sleeping on the floor and I went to turn the music down and then I thought, no, hang on. I'm the one in labour here. Why am I turning the music down to make him comfortable? <laughs> um, uh, by about 4 or 5 a.m. I said to the midwife, look, can you just give me some guidance or direction? What's happening here? And she gave me the most excruciating internal in the middle of contraction and I just thought, oh, gosh, you, you cruel woman. And she said, you're not even in labour. You're not even in labour. You're about four centimetres. That's not labour. And... I oh just my felt gosh, like, how yeah. defeating that I would feel like, oh my gosh. Yeah, like Megan <laughs> says, cervix like closed. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I just felt like I just totally failed. I'm like, wow, I've been through all of this. It's now been more than 24 hours and you're telling me I'm not even in labour. And I just felt, I just felt sort of stupid 
that I'd been there and if that wasn't labour, what was labour? But I now know I was in labour. So by the time the day started and the obstetrician came in, who was the head of department, who I was seeing, I was under the care of the midwives, but if, if anything sort of falls out of the norm, they bring in one of the obstetricians. And this particular obstetrician is a really big vaginal breech birth uh, fan. He's, he even speaks at international conferences. He is amazing. He's, he's Mr. Breach Birth. But because he was being given the information from that particular midwife, and I don't really know what that information was. I'd love to know. I'd love to go back and get her out of the room. But I didn't know. You could say, I don't want you. Or, you know, I felt like I was, it was all being dictated to me, which is really sad looking back. So he came in and said, look, I'm going to recommend a cesarean. How do you feel like that? And I burst into tears. My husband burst into tears. He knew that my number one fear of anything happening in birth was a cesarean. Like I wasn't scared of dying, but I was scared of a cesarean, which is how that like the gravity of the fear I had for that because I was just so determined this was not going to be a cesarean. So wheeled into the theatre, absolutely bawling. And when I was lying there, they they checked me and they said, the obstetrician said, oh, wow, good, you've made it to about six centimetres. Well done, that's really good. And so I felt, again, it was like that well done. I felt like, oh, the principal said I did a good job. Like it was that whole sort of they were telling me how I was going with it, which I think played on me a little bit later on. Anyway, so... Jack was born. I specifically said to one of my midwives in an appointment, I want to find out the gender first, but I've I nothing was written down. I said I wanted immediate skin to skin, but that wasn't written down. So when they pulled him out, a random voice said, Here he comes, it's a boy. And I thought, Oh, that's not my husband's voice. But anyway, and then a little Aww. baby was sort of a crying baby was shown to me and then taken away. And I, I remember lying there feeling like, oh, my God, all of this is happening to me. There's a baby in this room. It just is a baby. I never, I, it was, there was no connect that that was my baby. They wiped him down and wrapped him up and brought him over to me. And I, I remember just holding him like a, and, and shaking so much from all the drugs, which a lot of people do, but just feeling a real disconnect. Like they just handed me a baby. I didn't really have that immediate rush and that bond and everything that, I think a lot of unplanned cesarean mums probably feel that way. Yeah, I felt like that too. Yeah. A lot of my clients do. Like the most important thing is just like getting to hold their baby like right away, first thing. Yeah, but I wanted I wanted that slimy skin to skin. I wanted my baby on me, with me. And as soon as they took took him away and wiped him down and started doing all the ways and checks and measurements, that was taken away from me. And you can never give a woman that back. It's it's gone. And to some women that's fine. They don't really want that or it doesn't matter. But for me it was something I really yearned for and I told them that and it was still taken away from me. And that was hard for me to get over over the years afterwards, always reliving that baby over in the corner of the room. But anyway, we 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 had a beautiful, very healthy little baby boy and because he was breech, I had to get his hips tested at about six weeks. So I took him back to the hospital and I actually ran into the supervising obstetrician in, in the corridor and I said, hi, I've been thinking, remember in theatre you said I was about six centimetres? 
if you knew that before you gave me the spinal, would you have let me continue to labour? And he said, you know, we probably would have. And I felt like, yeah, I felt like my world just fell out from underneath me and he must have seen the look on my face and he said, but you were very exhausted to try and make up for, for what had happened. I just, so I lived with that for a few more years, trying to understand that and feeling so much resentment and, and, and a massive lack of control over what had happened to me. So I was determined to have a VBAC the next time. I did end up bonding very beautifully with Jack and we had a, a lovely breastfeeding journey and everything's been wonderful. So by the time the second pregnancy came around, I was just so determined. I had, I started my Cairo appointments really early to make sure my pelvis was in great shape, to make sure positioning would be good, to try and avoid having another breech baby if we could. I practiced all of my hypnobirthing breathing from the start of the pregnancy. I did a lot of yoga and spinning babies exercises, meditation. I just tried to do everything to keep myself in the right, you know, position and mindset for a really good, smooth pregnancy and and to have a successful feedback. And so I found my hospital's feedback policy and staff procedures and guidelines online. And I went through all of this paperwork with a fine tooth comb. So my approach to this birth was that these are only recommendations and I have the choice to make informed decisions based on these recommendations. Like I'm the customer in the hospital. It's not something that's going to be dictated to me this time. And I was very, very determined. In the in the policy and guidelines for the hospital, I I did hire a doula and she laughed because I printed it out and I wrote next to almost every second line, no thanks, no thanks, not for me, <laughs> not for me. I went to the evidence-based birth website and that was such a good resource for me. I found an answer to almost every one of those guidelines that worked for me, so a version of and that helped me write out my birth preferences and I took those back to that obstetrician and it took three rounds of edits before he and I were both happy with with what was to be the final birth plan. And he said to me, look, I'm okay with all of this. It's my hypervigilant colleagues who won't be and I don't know who's going to be on shift when you come in. And oh I really gosh. respected that, yeah. Look, I respected that he he was on my side and that he was being honest about the system. But it also made me angry because why should it take a really bad birth to become so aware that you have to be so educated to fight the system to get what you deserve? It shouldn't, it, every woman deserves the birth that is right for them. It shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't have to have a bad birth to have a good birth. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I agree 100%. And it makes me so sad that there are so many women. You've got, you know, you stand in the playground and every mum in the playground says, oh, my birth was this or they've got negative stories. And you might find a very rare mum who says, my first birth was amazing. And it's because we have to go through this system where it's dictated to us. And it's so sad and it's so wrong. But it's why education is so important as well and things like your podcast so that we know that these are choices. 
and that we should be making those informed decisions. So anyway, we the labour was the labour. The pregnancy was quite straightforward. My doula, Erica, was amazing. She told me the most important tool for me was my mind and that the best way to achieve this feedback was to labour for as long as possible at home. At 20 weeks, I did test positive to GBS. So under the hospital policy, that meant antibiotics through a cannula on admission in labour. And I just, after my first experience, I didn't want any cords and cables. I didn't want the monitors. I didn't want to be strapped like a, a zoo animal again. So I went and read the most recent Cochrane review, which found that no evidence exists to prove that antibiotics on admission really protects the baby from infection. So I discussed that with the hospital and... And again, the doctor was like, yes, that is the most recent research and I agree with it, but the hospital policy isn't yet up to date with that research, which is, you know, (laughs) it's just another little bit of frustration. So anyway, he took a look at my veins and he said, look, you've got big veins. They're pretty easy to find. I think if something happens and we really need to insert a cannula, we can do it at the time. So then he signed off on me not having cannulas. But again, it was only because I went and found that research to then present back to the hospital. And I'm not a health professional. I'm a mum. It's not my my area, whereas they should be the one saying to me, hey, this is the latest research. But they don't. I agree. No, do you know what? I like went off the other day. I was like on our Instagram page. I It was like, why is the burden of proof mm. lie on the parents? Why Absolutely. is it that when you disagree with your provider that you have to be the one to show the current research and the evidence-based practices? Why don't the providers have this information and why aren't they the ones looking it up to make sure that they're providing the right level of care? I mean, I'm sure that's a very complex, there's a complex answer to that, but like it really frustrates me that the burden of proof lies mm. on the birthing person. It's frustrating. Absolutely. And do you think that applies to... Like if you've got cancer and you go to your oncologist, you're not going to be presenting them with the latest research. You'd feel really silly doing that. And that's why I think a lot of women would feel the same in pregnancy. Like you're telling the experts how to do their job and it's really, it's a really uncomfortable thing to do. But if they can Mm -hmm. discuss it with you, like like this amazing um, obstetrician, but anyway, look, my doula said soak in a bath of diluted apple cider vinegar for a few days and you'll test negative to GBS and I did. So that was <laughs> that was good. I got to avoid fighting the how, system anyway. How much did you put in the bath? <laughs> I put um, two cups or I think it was two cups or maybe one cup of apple cider vinegar in a bath that was up to like my belly button. So quite diluted. Nice. nice. I have awesome. no idea if... It was a coincidence, but hey, it it we got but the results. But it worked. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> through through this pregnancy, I did start to feel. I'd never felt. I'd never had any mental health issues at all, and I did start to feel. I think I was. I think the trauma from my first birth was manifesting itself in a lot of anxiety, and it was really an odd thing for me, and that made it scary. I was, you know, I'd be waiting on the train platform to get the train home from work and I'd have really shocking images of my son on the I know it's a bit brutal you might want to edit that out but I'd my son wouldn't even be with me but I'd see him lying on the train tracks when the train would come and things like that it was just so graphic and horrible and 
I would have panic attacks and break down and cry and have to leave the train station and think, oh, my God, how am I going to get home? But things that were un- never going to happen because my son wasn't even with me, but there was – I've since learnt they're called intrusive thoughts and they're really, really, really common, especially with mums, and that it's something like I, I was too scared even when, when I had – when the baby was born, I was too scared to cross the road because I was certain that cars were going to hit all of us and that the kids would be taken. And they were unreasonable because there weren't even cars on the road when I would be crossing. But I think that all of all of these overwhelming thoughts in my mind and this trauma was manifesting itself in this new form of mental health that I hadn't dealt with before. So I started seeing a psychologist who specialises in perinatal mental health. And it is, it was wonderful. She helped me so much and gave me so many tools, but it's something that I'm still to this day um, learning how to deal with. And it's something that I think is important to talk about because we don't realise just how common mental health issues are. And again, we don't talk about it enough, I don't think. And women think they're alone and they suffer alone, but really we just need to talk. Talking it out is amazing. Having, having a couple with your neighbours, having, having a chat with girlfriends can help so much with that. But that was a big part of this pregnancy because it was just unexpected. I'd never had anything like that happen before. So by about 33 weeks, I had an unexpected bleed. I went to the toilet and went, oh, look, I've got my period. And then I went, oh, hang on. I'm pregnant. I, I'm not supposed to have my period. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> oh, wow. Wait a second. And I rang my midwife and she's like, yeah, you need to you need to come straight in. And I just bawled because I had worked so hard to have this feedback and my mind was on one path. And then all of a sudden I got thrown this curveball. We went into hospital. We monitored. I stayed for a while, stayed overnight. They couldn't find anything. They couldn't find a cause. And I actually think I was burning the candle at both ends. I was stressing myself out a little bit. My, my head had told my body to chill. And I ignored it. So then my body overrode that and I just needed to rest. So at 33 weeks, I um, finished work and I went to the beach every day and it was so lovely. So this was November, December in Sydney. It was just before the bushfires started that you guys would have seen in the news, I think, last year. And the beach every day was was quite spooky. It was getting the sky would get darker. Yeah, it was. And the the day after my baby was born, I walked out into the hospital corridor and the whole corridor was like out of a movie. It was like someone had turned a smoke machine on from a party. The whole corridor was just thick smoke. So it had come through the hospital air conditioning and everything. So it was a a bit of a – we thought that was a scary time to give birth. Little did we know COVID was to hit a few months later. But um, (laughs) – So I would go to the beach every day and every day I'd like put a little story up on Instagram and my friends would say, oh, you're still pregnant. Yep, still pregnant. Got to sort of 37, 38, 39, 40 weeks. Yep, still pregnant. 41 weeks. Yep, still pregnant. And I had people say things to me like, but why are they letting you go so long? Why haven't they induced you yet? And I'd say I don't want to be. I feel fine. The baby will come when the baby's ready. But how are they allowing you to do that? Even my mum would say things like that. Mum would say, what are the doctors saying? Isn't this, the baby's going to be like a shriveled up little raisin. You can't, oh, you can't have oh, this no. happen. I'm like, oh, no, mum, the baby's fine. The baby doesn't know the date on the calendar. The baby's okay. But 
as much as I was okay with going late, well, late, I say with, you know, inverted commas, but it was the pressure around me. And as much as you might say, I'm okay with this, it's those little comments every single day. Oh, aren't you sick of it? Oh, that baby must be so big. Are you sure that baby's okay? So I went in for a scan at 41 weeks just to check everything was okay. And the sonographer said to me, you do realise you're seriously increasing your risk of having a stillborn by choosing to go over your dates with this pregnancy. I hate it when they use that. Like the statistics <laughs> are there. Yes, it does increase, but the increases. I mean, technically you could say it doubles, but it goes from 0.02% to 0.04%. And so it's still a really, really small percent yep. risk. I mean, it's just, but like when you say it like that, oh, your risk of stillbirth doubles, then it's way scary sounding. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, is that a sonographer's job or is that a midwife's job to tell me that? Um, that or was real. Yeah, so I did tell my midwife and I said, I'd like to complain about that sonographer because I'm going in there with all the education and I know the stats because I research everything. But a lot of women don't. And if she's going and saying things like that to women, they're probably leaving there petrified that the baby's not okay. And it's totally not her job to do that. And to her, that was just a flippant comment and off she goes and has a cup of tea or a lunch break. It doesn't, you know, there's no consequences to her. But people in these jobs have to be so careful with the language, the language that they use, even like in my first labour, oh, you're not even in labour or you chose to do it this way. All of those little comments can stick with you and keep niggling in your head for years. Oh, um, yeah, totally. I had that happen with my birth when my doctor was like, oh, I'm so glad you didn't VBAC. You for sure would have ruptured, oh. you know. So then what happened when I was going to VBAC after my 2C section? I'm in labour and in my head I'm hearing that. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. Oh, they, like you said, like they say things and it, they'd probably never think about it again, ever. No. But it, it sticks with us. So it's something that keeps, keeps, yeah, churning yeah. over in your mind. Yeah. Um, so at about 40 weeks, so we already know that I went towards the end, but at about 40 weeks, I did go and have some Chinese foot reflexology. And I said, can you hit all the, all the trigger points? I want this baby out. And that night I woke up to contractions and I was like, this is it. They were about eight to ten minutes apart. They were really full on. I was listening to my hypnobirthing tracks. I was trying to rest. I was trying to breathe. I couldn't. I thought, oh, yeah, we're on. And then, of course, by 9 a.m. they were gone. <laughs> what was that? I just, went, in, I just went into labor and I stopped. <laughs> what the hell? So then another week went past and I, I knew the pressure was coming from the hospital and depending on, on who I saw, some of them were okay with me, but some of them were like, you know, once you hit 40 weeks, even though we've signed off on you going to 42, once we hit 40, and I'm like, well, you're not doing what you just signed off on by saying that, are you? <laughs> you're putting that pressure on. So I said to my midwife, all right, let's have a look. Let's have a talk about having a sweep because it's the only type of intervention I was comfortable with and especially um, if that was going to help me avoid more induction pressure closer to 42 weeks because I knew if I was to be induced then I was going down that slippery path of heading more towards another caesarean and I was just so scared of touching anything that would go down that path. So we did a sweep, didn't really do anything. Three days later we did another one, it didn't really do anything. 
Then on a Saturday afternoon, I had a bit more foot reflexology. I'm like, well, it triggered something last time. Let's give it another go. And then I went for a sweep. So I don't know which one it was, but in the car on the way home, I started to feel the heavy period pain come back and it was fading in and out. So that was Saturday afternoon by midnight. I could not sleep anymore. It was, I was timing the contractions. They were about five minutes apart, lasting about 50 seconds. So I thought, yeah, we're on here. In the morning, I said to Phil, can you take our son to my parents' house? And he got halfway there and realised he forgot something and he rang me in a panic. Have I got time? Have I got time? I've got, I've got to turn around. I've got to get his bag that I forgot. I'm like, oh, I, I think you've got time, I guess. I don't know. Just hurry up and do it. Anyway, we did not know <laughs> that the day was going to go on and on. We spent all day trying to help me move. The contractions were really, like, paralysing. So if I, we thought we need to get it going. But we went for a walk and every, every few steps I'd have to stop and just hold on to a tree, hold on to, hold on to my husband, hold on to people's fences so this is Sunday afternoon this has been going on now for about 24 hours that night it just continued and I thought it was ramping up I got in the shower we had the tens machine going I got in the shower and our bathroom wall is a shared wall with the neighbors and it's the side of neighbors that we don't know very well and I'll never forget that night at about 10 p.m bellowing like a cow like just roaring like like it was a full-on zoo there was a zoo happening in our house and thinking these poor neighbours next door must think something really freaky is going on. And I, I got out of the shower and I went, call Erica, we've got to call the doula. And, of course, she came over and she made me feel calm and safe and they sort of subsided a little bit. So she came over at midnight on Sunday night. She was still there the next morning. We knew that the midwives clock on at 7 a.m. So we waited till 7 and called the midwives on, uh, and one of them came and did a home check. She's like, yeah, you're about five or six centimetres, which, which was great because I knew I was already still at home at the point that I was lying on the operating theatre table a few years earlier. That was good. But as the day went on, it was just like they were still about five minutes apart, but they weren't getting any closer. So by by the afternoon, by Monday afternoon, Erica said, okay, let's let's call in some other people. Let's see if we can get some maybe acupuncture or what can you think of? And I went, my Cairo. I remember listening to a VBAC Link podcast where a Cairo did an adjustment in labour. Let's give that a go. And I texted my Cairo and she came over and she didn't do a lot. She did a little, a few feels around my hips and adjustments and she said I think um I think you should do some sideline releases the the spitting babies exercise so we did that we lay down and as soon as I sat up I went this gush my waters had broken it was so incredible that just a little bit of feeling around recognized that there was tension in my right hip once we released it labor kick started so I mean this is still Monday afternoon though and this started on Saturday afternoon so I've been going for a long time. There was a lot of vomiting. There was a lot of, yeah, everything else coming out of my body. <laughs> so we went, in, went into hospital and it was the most excruciating car ride, like I know everybody says, but we got into hospital and Erica was behind us in the lift and she said she knew where it was happening because 
she said I was just shaking and she said that involuntary shaking means you're there, which was really cool. So we got in. My midwife said, would you mind, do you want to check? All of her language was really good, which was cool. She wasn't telling me I'm going to check you. She was, would you like me to? And I said, yeah, I want to see how far along I am. She she said, wow, you're a good eight centimetres. And I'd done all that on my own at home, which I was really pleased with. So she then put some monitors on. She said, I know you don't want these, but we just have to see. And I had, of course, envisaged this beautiful water birth that like everyone wants. But she said, look, baby's heart is decelerating after contractions. If you don't want to be hooked up to the machines, the wireless monitors are a thing that we can do, but it means you can only get in the shower and not in the bath. And I thought, you know what, I just need that water. If I can move and if I've got this amazing circle of really cool supporters around me, then I don't really care where I, I could be in the corridor. I don't care where I am. I felt so safe in this circle. And Erica had told me every time someone comes in, even in appointments before before labour, if someone comes in and makes you feel like, you know, they've got the wrong vibe, just stretch. Pretend you're stretching but put your hands up and do like a circle and that's your force field. And it's so funny because it worked. And I imagined that every time... I imagined this little bubble around me and I had these protectors around me and, my God, that was so different to the first time. It was so powerful to have these people around me that I loved and trusted. So it was my midwife, my favourite student midwife, my doula and my husband, and it was our team. It was the A team. And at the centre of that team was my baby and we were all there for her, which was really cool. So we did I, – I was on the shower, on the floor in the shower and – contracting and the baby was crowning and my midwife said um the registrar the doctor on duty wants to come in and make herself known to you I'm like what <laughs> wow make her, what, what what do you wow. mean <laughs> and she said you can say no but if you do they're going to be knocking and knocking and knocking so up to you and I went fine just let her in do what say hello but she's not doing anything to me and then she can go so I'll never forget, I'm on the floor in my zone and I look over and I see this little clicky pair of plastic heels that, <laughs> and I look up and there's this doctor wearing scrubs and she bent down and looked at me and she said, I need to tell you about the risk of what you're trying to do. A VBAC is very dangerous. And I kind of like, I wasn't laughing because I was in the middle of a contraction probably, but I thought, you're so pathetic. Like she didn't even penetrate my little force field that I'd visualised around me. She just, it was like a little fly coming in <laughs> that we could just chew off. And Phil said, not now, really loud and really <laughs> firmly. And I was so proud of him because he's not, he's not that kind of, this was all not his zone. So yeah. it was really cool that he did that and she just sort of backed off and off she went. Oh, um, that's awesome. It was so good and I I felt I was on the floor and I knew something was happening but I didn't know what was happening but I kind of needed to, like I needed to get in a corner. I wanted to be dark. I just I didn't know what was going on. So I said, can you lower the bed onto the floor? And my midwife was like, okay, why? Like, what do you think? I don't know. I need to. I needed to be somewhere safe that wasn't the hard shower floor and we moved over and she's like, yeah, you're, you're ready. So I pushed for half an hour. I didn't want coached pushing, but I did want whatever help I could get to not tear. 
And so the girls would help teach me how to breathe down through each contraction and then to hold off a little bit. But it was, it was a little bit funny because every time a song changed, my midwife would say, this is a good song to be born to. And I go, okay. And the song would change. And she'd go, this is a good song to be born to. And about the fifth time I went, you just say that to every song. <laughs> she goes, okay, yeah, I do. <laughs> You're like, any song is a good song <laughs> to, be, to be born to. <laughs> but I knew that when, um, when my husband's favourite songs came on, he'd squeeze my shoulder and say, this is a good song to be born to. I'm like, not you too. <laughs> anyway, um, she did. Tilly was, she did come out. She was born at a quarter to midnight on the eve of 42 weeks. She, she was, she was fine. She was a beautiful little girl. She, her head was out and the midwife said, do you want to feel her head? Which was so cool as before the head came out, putting my hand down there and feeling this little slimy, hairy head was just such an amazing feeling because we'd made it. I knew by that point we'd made it and we'd done it all together and we didn't need anybody or anything else. Like it was really hard and it was really tough and it went for a really long time, but I just trusted that bubble of safe people around me and and we did it. So she she came out. She was I did want to lift her up myself, but she was um the girl said something about my cord not quite been long enough maybe so I picked her up but they handed her to me she was straight on me I got my skin to skin I got my slimy baby that I really wanted and I I had requested to wait to give to have that golden hour to have all of that skin to skin to wait for my placenta so we waited for the cord to stop pulsing and then after half an hour my midwife said came back in and she said um hospital clock says we have to get placenta out how do you feel about giving it a tug yourself before we give you the injection I was like yes it was so cool so with one hand on my baby the other hand down between my legs I gently pulled on the tug and it was like a giant tampon string like I just pulled it and my placenta flopped out Aww. it was so cool that and it wasn't painful it was just well I mean, a baby yeah. had just come out. For me, the placenta was just, it's, and I was scared of, you know, women say, oh, they don't tell you how painful it is when the placenta comes out. It was actually, it, I think because I just left it and let my body do its thing and I only just assisted it a little bit with a little tug. So that was really cool. And then I, I clamped the cord and I cut it myself oh and that my was gosh, important to me. That's awesome. Yeah, it was so beautiful because to me it signified you know, the end of our internal connection and the start of our external connection. And it was all about her and I doing that together. We didn't know we were having a girl. I hoped, of course, that we were having a girl because we had a boy. But she was on me for a little while and, and then someone said, what is what is it? Have a look. And, when, and seeing that it was a girl, it was just so beautiful. Everything was just so lovely. So we got there and we got there without, without the system dictating to me and it was so wonderful but it still makes me so you know so angry that that people have to fight the system to get what I think they deserve so the notes on my discharge form after Jack's birth said that um the cesarean was due to a failure to progress it had nothing to do with his 
breach positioning. But failure to progress in that labour was half the length of time as the second labour. And the notes on the second labour's discharge forms say no complications. So, I mean, what does that tell us about hospital clocks, hospital policies dictating what Mother Nature can take care of herself? You know, if we're just educated and determined, then we can get what we deserve. But I know I keep saying you shouldn't have to have a bad birth to have a good birth. So, it's yeah, I think it's we know that like my body just labours for a really long time. So some people say, oh, my God, why did they let you labour for so long? How could, why did you want that to happen? Well, I, I just, oh my God. it was Why did they was, let you? Why what did they let you? let you? Oh, my, my goodness. They? Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's nothing wrong with that. That's my body and that's the way my body labours. It's not fun. It's pretty ordinary. But that's, that's the way my body does it. So failure to progress for me is something that infuriates me when women tell me oh I had to have a cesarean because of you know failure to progress I I just feel sad and I yeah but the whole you know my whole journey was very draining but it was very much full of growth as well I think so I'm really passionate about people people knowing that they can have that birth that not the birth that a policy or an opinion tells them that they should be having they should be having the birth that they deserve so yeah that's that's my story. And the VBAC rates in Australia, they're 12%. I was just looking this up. And people will use that as a reason for not having a vaginal birth. But I think of those who attempt a VBAC, 87% are successful. So when you say only 12% of women will have a VBAC, that's not because they're failing. It's because it's dictated to them that they have to. And we really... <laughs> We really need to change that. I mean, that that success rate of attempt at eighty seven percent is really high. That's a really cool figure. We need to be working with that, not with the twelve percent. Yep. So yeah, I'm, I just feel so passionate now after going through that. That we're all so cool, aren't we? If we really, Mother Nature's got it. Our bodies have got it. Yep, that's so true. I the rates are similar here in the United States. Actually, mm-hmm. back rate is anywhere from 10 to 12 percent every year but the studies show that only 60 to 80 percent of women who attempt a VBAC will be successful in that attempt uh-huh. but I say I say that more would be successful if they had a provider that was truly supportive instead of just saying okay well we'll have a VBAC as long as you go into labor by 40 weeks and as long as it's spontaneous because we don't induce feedback and as long as you know all of this list of criteria so I think we have probably a lot more providers in the United States that are not supportive mm-hmm. when women make that choice but also you know just like in Australia their providers just aren't giving them the option which is why only 10% of women will have a feedback and so exactly. yeah so it's just super frustrating and very can be very confusing to a parent after having a cesarean but what i want to do um really fast before we get off the phone is talk about due dates for vbag now evidence-based birth we love them they're incredible you can go on to evidencebasedbirth.com and find anything about anything 
and they have a really, really lengthy blog about due dates and induction. They talk about the ARRIVE study and several other, other studies that have come up about um, induction at 39 weeks versus induction or, um, you know, spontaneous labor or inducing later on um, in the pregnancy. And they have a, a section specifically about people planning a VBAC. And I'm just going to go ahead and read what she wrote here. It's not too long, but I just, I love it because Rebecca Decker, the owner of Evidence-Based Birth, it, her and her team, her research team are, are so good at digging deeply into the studies and unveiling what the studies really say and what they mean. And so I'm just going to go ahead and read this. We're going to link to the article in the show notes. So if you are wondering how to find this article, you can just click on our show notes or you can just Google evidence on due dates. And it's just right there, the first response to show up in Google. And so I'm just going to read this. Uh, She says, what about people who are planning a VBAC? Many women who are planning a vaginal birth after cesarean are told they must go into labor by 39, 40, or 41 weeks, or they will be required to have a repeat cesarean or induction. Research has shown that only 10% of people who reach term will spontaneously give birth by 39 weeks. So if a hospital or physician mandates repeat cesarean for people who have not gone into labor by 39 weeks, this means that 90% of people planning a VBAC with that hospital or physician will be disqualified from having a spontaneous vaginal birth. Also, some hospitals and providers will not provide inductions with VBACs, which means some people who reach the required deadline will only have one option, which is a repeat cesarean. There's actually no evidence supporting the hard stop must give birth by 39 weeks or give birth by 40 weeks rules for people planning a VBAC. In 2015, researchers looked at 12,676 people who were electively induced at 39 weeks for a VBAC or had expected management for VBAC. Expected management, just a little side note here, means either spontaneous labor or like inducing if there's a medical reason or electively like beyond the arbitrary deadline, which in this case is 39 weeks. It looks like elective induction at 39 weeks was associated with a higher chance of VBAC compared to expected management, but there was also a higher rate of uterine rupture in the elective induction group, which is 1.4% versus about half percent. So it's almost three times more likely uh, uterine rupture at 39 weeks elective induction than the spontaneous management or the expected management group, excuse me. For people who chose not to be induced, the risk of uterine rupture was fairly steady at 39 weeks, which it was half a percent, 40 weeks was 0.6%, and 41 weeks was 0.4%. So right around there, not a, not a statistically significant difference in the rupture rates, no matter how far you go gestationally as far as uh, labor is spontaneous or um, expectant management. The first large meta-analysis to specifically look at the link between weeks of pregnancy and the likelihood of VBAC was published in 2019, which is really exciting because it's very recent. It included 94 observational studies with nearly 240,000 people attempting labor for VBAC. Interestingly, they found that gestational week at birth was not linked to chances of having a VBAC. Whether someone gave birth at 37, 39, or 41 weeks, it didn't make a difference to whether someone had a VBAC 
or a cesarean birth after cesarean. So basically what that is saying is that this huge comprehensive study shows that there's no change in your chances of having a VBAC related to what week gestation you are. But there's this other study that shows um, a much smaller study, which about a lot less people, you compare 240,000 people to 12,676 people, um, significantly fewer people show that elective induction at 39 weeks triples your chance of having a uterine rupture, but expected management of labor um, in that group showed that there was a higher chance of VBAC success at the 39-week induction group. But this much larger study shows that there's no difference. So I would definitely go with the larger study just because you have 20 times the amount of people in that study, which gives you a more definitive look. Um, it doesn't talk about the risk of uterine rupture, though, in that larger group. So we have those two. Yeah. Apparently, Megan is writing a blog right now on this. <laughs> yes, I am. I am writing a blog. So by the time this airs, we too will have a blog and it will be titled The Success Rate After 40 Weeks for VBAC. So check it out on our blog. Megan, there's a study right there. I know. Uh, Go ahead and Google evidence on due dates. Yep. Scroll down and there's mm -hmm. several studies linked. So yep. yeah, go back and look through our blogs, go back and look on the evidence-based birth website. But this is the thing is that I, I just want to highlight really important, just like double emphasis, bold, underline, exclamation points. There is no evidence to support the hard stop deadline of giving birth at 39 weeks or 40 weeks for VBAC. There's no evidence to support that. And your likelihood of having a successful VBAC at 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, or even 42 weeks does not change. I mean, like your odds of having one does not change no matter what week gestation you give if you go into this expected management protocol, which again is either waiting for spontaneous labor or waiting for a medical need for induction. So, yeah. Any questions? <laughs> no. <laughs> we could do a live podcast one day. I wonder how we could do that. Like people could just ask questions while we're recording. That would be super fun. That'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that we are so grateful for you and happy birthday. Thank you. To yes. Today. And we as I was saying to you guys earlier, the name Matilda means um strength in battle. So she's a woman of strength from day one. Happy birthday to her today. Happy birthday. All right. Well, we are going to let you go and snuggle your sweet little baby of strength, although it's <laughs> 2 30 in the morning. So you should probably just go back to bed. It's 3 30 now. I'm going back to bed. <laughs> it's 3 30 now. <laughs> Interested in sharing your VBAC? Head over to the slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.